Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to back to Romans, and let's see how far we can get tonight um, in our study. We'll uh, finish up next week of Romans 9. Let me read you that last uh, paragraph that starts at verse 30. That's our concentration last week, tonight, and next week. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Guys, if you're here, uh, kind of one of the first times of your experience on a Wednesday night, this is going to be pretty hard for you to jump in as we uh, almost finish up the uh, the ninth chapter. But we'll um, hopefully there'll be something here that'll be that'll catch your fancy. Last week, you may recall that we talked about faith. You'll notice that what Paul does in verse 30 and 31 is said, in essence, the outsider is in, and the people who are on the inside are out. That is, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they're in, but the Jews that did pursue a righteousness by law are out. Um, And he describes the Gentiles as being in because they pursued righteousness by faith. And that's what we talked about last week. I gave you three characteristics of faith, and then I gave you three convictions that I I think um, that faith uh, creates or produces. Uh, Three things that kind of begin to develop the more I, I chase after the things of God. That was, that was last week. Well, tonight, in verse 32, Paul explains with some degree of specificity why it is that Israel did not um, succeed in their project. He, he opens the verse 32 by saying why. He closes verse 31 by saying that Israel, who pursued a law, did not succeed. Well, why didn't they succeed? Well, because they did it wrong. (laughs) Because they did not pursue it by faith. They relied on themselves. They sought to work their way into a posture where they were right with God. And that is the wrong route. Now, guys, um, it is at this point, at verse 32 where the critics of the Apostle Paul begin to howl. And a long howling goes on about what Paul says in verse 32. Now let me explain to you what they're howling about. Um, people, I mean, people attack the Scriptures for a lot of reasons. I, I listened to something yesterday um, by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, the... The, um, the Intelligent Gene, uh, The Blind Watchmaker, his latest book, the one that's current, is called uh, The God Delusion. And boy, does he vengefully take out after the Scriptures. But that, that's one attack. But the, there are others who attack the Apostle Paul who are, in, with some measure, uh, um, respecters of this book. But they, they attack the Apostle Paul by saying that he contradicts, in verse 32 and following, 
everything that he has been saying up to this point in chapter 9. Here's their complaint. In verses 6 through 29, Paul has taught with some degree of uh, repetition that salvation is entirely dependent upon the sovereignty of God. And, and he did that several ways in verses 6 through 29. For instance, he used that illustration, you'll recall, I hope, about the, the, uh, the, the clay and the potter. Does not the potter have the right to do with the clay as he wishes? That was one of his images. The other um, uh, illustration in verse 14 or 13 talks about, I love Jacob, but I didn't love Esau. Uh, and then in verse 16, he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So Paul has taught from verse 6 to verse 29 that one's um, salvation is dependent upon a sovereign act of God. And now, in verse 32, Paul suddenly says that the determining factor has to do with the way that a man seeks salvation. Look what it says. Why? Why didn't they attain it? Because they did not pursue it by faith. And so, the critics argue, it is a man's faith that saves him and not the sovereign elective work of God. We have a contradiction here. Paul has contradicted himself. Now, guys, there's, there's a couple of ways to solve this dilemma. Actually, there's, there's three ways to solve the dilemma. You can say that there's a contradiction here. Uh, but those of us who love this book are not willing to say something like that. Um, um, others are. <laughs> Some names that that we've mentioned in the past, are willing to say, well, what you've got here is just a contradiction. Paul says one thing in verses 6 through 29, but he just changes it in verse 32. He just changed it. That's one way to deal with it, but uh, those of us who love the book would not choose such an option. The other, or the other two options uh, is, um, <laughs> is an option that is espoused by the Arminian, or Arminianism, and... Um, their explanation for this, this dilemma is that God does indeed elect, but his election is conditioned by his foreknowledge. Now, guys, uh, this is why I say it's kind of hard if you're here for the first time, because we've addressed this. Um, I addressed it with some degree of length, uh, telling you that that is, I, I tried to convince you that that is a position that you do not want to have. You do not want to have it because it, it in essence, not in essence, it in fact makes man his own savior. Now, let me, let me just explain that real quickly and then we'll, we've got to move on, but we, we took a whole Wednesday night and devoted to this in the winter. Um, if God's elective decree is based on his foreknowledge, that is, he knows what you're going to choose, and thus, in response to that, he then elects you. 
If that is true, then what you have done is turn faith into a work and make man into his own savior because this is what's happened. What's happened is God looked down the quarters of time. He saw something that you were going to do. And as a result of seeing that thing that you were going to do, he then enters into a saving relationship with you as a result of what he saw that you were going to do. Do you see how awful that is? It says, well, you did something that was quite meritorious, and because it was so meritorious, I now am going to accept you based on that piece of merit that I just saw in you. And that piece of merit was faith. And so what you've done by such a position, ladies and gentlemen, is turn faith into a work. That's something that I can do, and I therefore did it, and as a result, God responded. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, you don't want that. You have eviscerated the cardinal doctrine of the New Testament, being the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Faith is a gift. That's what we talked about last week. It is not a work. It is not something that fallen man can perform. But that position suggests that he can. And because he did, God saw it. And he then responded to that by entering. And so what you have done is you have earned this relationship that you've you see what that, I mean, it's, it's an awful position, guys. It is, guys, um, one of the things that, that you've got to do if you want to succeed in any kind of, if you want to be a theologian or even a small one, you've got you've to figure out, okay, where does my position take me? Where does, where does it conclude if I hold on to this? Okay, if I hold on to that God does elect, but He does it, His election is conditioned by His foreknowledge. If that is the position that you have, which is all of Arminianism, ladies and gentlemen, where does it take me? And I'm suggesting to you, that it takes you to a position where you have eviscerated the doctrine of justification by, justification by faith, you have made faith into a work, and you have made man his own savior. Ooh. That's not a position that I think you want. Uh, but, but you'll have to determine that. Um, so that's one option. It's not a very good one, but it is an option. The other option is to say that there is no contradiction, that they're both true. Now, guys, um, on January the 31st of this year, I spent the whole Wednesday night talking about a both-and versus an either-or. I spent the whole night talking about one of the mistakes that we make is that we tend to be either-or thinkers. That is, um, either we have um, this moral responsibility or everything is determined. Uh, either we are responsible and our choices matter and our future is open, or we are fixed and our choices don't matter. That's an either-or 
either this or that. The position of the Reformation, the position of Reformed theology, ladies and gentlemen, is that both of those things are true. And I spent much of the night showing you example after example after it. Remember that? Do you remember? I showed you eight examples uh, in, the, uh, in the Scriptures where both of those things are set side by side. For instance, do you remember the one about Pharaoh? Remember we went to the book of Exodus and we said, um, and, and, and God says, and I will harden his heart. And then the, you turn over to chapter 2 and it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then I said to you, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? You don't remember any of that? Boy, this is a blank stare that I'm getting. Uh, I did another excellent job on the 31st of January, I can tell. Um, I, I tell you what we'll do. We'll look at one of them. I, I mean, I've got them. I, I, I mean, I got my notes from the 31st. I brought them with me. We can do that, but I don't think you want to do that. But we'll look at one of them. And, and I told you it was my favorite. Go to Acts chapter 2. This is uh, Peter. He's preaching in that first sermon after Pentecost. And um, he makes a statement that I, that I think illustrates what I'm trying to say. Oh, my goodness. Men of Israel, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here it is, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, my question to you that night was this. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, according to that text? Well, I mean, uh, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what, that's what did it. Okay, then, then why are these men's hands considered lawless? And have done a bad thing if they were simply carrying out the predetermined plan for knowledge of God. You see, my point is, you see the sovereignty of God and the moral responsibility of man set side by side in the same verse. Peter says it and never slows down to explain it. Because, you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not either or. It's both and. It's this and that, not this or that. It is, it is, man is morally responsible agent, and God is absolutely sovereign. And I, if you need to have those other eight uh, instances, I can give you those. I've got my notes from then. But let me, let me read you just a couple of, uh, we've got about six minutes. Uh, just read you a, a couple of, I wanted to read you one quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is my hero, but um, what, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is, is answer the charge that has been leveled against the Apostle Paul saying that verse 32 contradicts verses 6 through 29. You get that. And that's, that's where the complaint has come. Wait a minute, Paul. What you said in verse 32 doesn't square with what you said in verse 6 29. And I'm telling you, in verses 6, 29, 6 through 29, Paul does indeed teach the utter sovereignty of God. And then in verse 32, he teaches you the moral responsibility of man. And this is how Lloyd-Jones says it. 
I don't know that you're going to get this. I'm going to try to make it. I'm going to give you my version, which is dumber. Um, but this is what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, election alone accounts for the saved, but non-election does not account for the lost. Did you all get that? Well, let me give you my, my dumbed-down version that this is the best I could do. Guys, we are responsible for our rejection of the gospel. If you go to hell, it is because you have chosen to go there. And we are also not responsible for our acceptance of the free offer of the gospel. Or maybe I should have put a but. You are responsible for the rejection of the gospel, but you are not responsible for your acceptance of it. Um, guys, it is only the sovereign intervention of God that saves any man. Because we went over that with some detail about man um, and his deadness. Only God's intervention saves any of us. So then why is a man lost? Well, because he rejected the gospel. Do you see what I'm doing, guys? I'm telling you that both of these things are true. And you say, well, <laughs> I don't understand all that. I understand you don't understand all of that. I'm saying that there is a certain tension that is created by saying that man is morally responsible for his choices and God is absolutely sovereign for his elected decrees and both of those are true. Well, Jimmy, those, that just produces a headache. I mean, I'm getting a little bit of you know, tension here over those two things. I don't get it. Well, I'm not saying you're even supposed to. I'm just saying, for the sake of your tension, don't get rid of one of them. And that's what I think the Arminian has done. The other two options that you have are Arminianism and some kind of hyper-Calvinistic position. And both of these options are either or options. Either this is true or... But Reformed theology says both of those things are true. And they're held in a dynamic tension. And what Paul has done in Romans 9 is a classic illustration of it. He spends 24 verses talking to you about God's sovereign elective decrees. And then he says, oh, by the way, the reasons that Israel did not attain to it is because they pursued it wrong. They are morally responsible. They are morally responsible for having not pursued righteousness by faith. Man is responsible for his choices. But the fact that he is does not mean that he can save himself. A man's unbelief is not God's fault. It is the sovereign intervention of God that brings any of us to a saving faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. But any refusal and opposition to the free offer of the gospel is something for which I am morally everlastingly responsible. Both of those things taught right here.
I leave you with that. Um, my plea is, if that begins to stir some kind of tension in you, that's exactly where you're supposed to be. But don't, in the sake of your, for the sake of alleviating your tension, say, well, I can't figure these two things out, and so therefore I'm going to get rid of one of them. God is absolutely, completely, utterly sovereign in all that occurs. And you, we, us, I, all of us are responsible for our moral decisions and moral choices. Both of those things taught side by side in this book. So, you can have the Arminian position, which says, uh, God does do this, but he does it based on something he saw in me. That just destroys the doctrine of justification by faith, or you can hold on to both of these. Not an either or, a both and. Let's quit. Our Father, I, I do pray that your people will discover the, the profundity of this, of, of the message of the free offer of the gospel. A gospel that we can only embrace if you intervene to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. But a gospel that when we reject it, we become culpable for our having done so. Now, Lord, um, might there be a, a, a greater determination to discover all that you have done to save us and a greater ability to praise you for this grand work performed. Give us a sense of wonder that any of us have ever come to terms with Jesus Christ. But the fact that we have, O oh God, is something that you have wrought, and we praise you for it. We pray, of course, tonight in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord.